Thank you, as always, for stopping in to the program titled Please Don't Aggregate This. Um, my name is Jake Fisher. I'm an MBA reporter for Bleacher Report. And uh, very pleased to be joined today by someone who I saw the back of his head for the last couple hours in the Wintrust Arena in uh, the South Loop of Chicago. Is that accurate? Uh, one Jeremy Wu, the draft insider for Sports Illustrated. What's up, man? Oh, what's going on? I'm, I literally, I have not left the gym. I'm just in the in the back here. Uh, there's like maybe five people here uh, listening to me talk. So, or hopefully not listening too hard. Um, I ran back to my hotel the second the last scrimmage ended. Um, very pleased by the play of uh, Jordan Rhodes today. That's my big takeaway. That's not even the, um, the right name. That's not the person. Not name. even the right name. What's his? Oh my god. Hold on, I'm finding it. Um, see, I don't watch the I don't watch college anymore. I don't know. Is it Jared Roden? Is that his name? Yes, that is it. There it is. Um, six six made some plays. Soft field. What what is as someone who's been on the road all year long? Like, what really is the value of this G League league camp from an NBA talent evaluator perspective? Um, of the combine. No, the, the, the G League elite camp that we've got. Oh, the G League, the G League camp. Yeah, so so basically, it's like it's an extension of the the combine. You know, it was created to, I think, incorporate more players. Um, you know, facilitate. You know, the team or teams having more information on more guys, and uh, you know, we there were always pre-draft events like Portsmouth uh, and things like that. Uh, this is sort of you know officialized that. So just. Um, you know, gets everybody to Chicago earlier. It turns the combine into a whole week. Uh, you know, usually they'll take the four or five best guys from this event and they'll put them in the actual combine. You know, the, the number varies each year, but, you know, there are stakes for guys who play well to, you know, theoretically get more exposure. Um, and it just, uh, you know, I don't think anybody is complaining having more opportunities to watch players in the setting. Uh, so, you know, it is what it is. Like, the basketball we saw today was not, like, riveting basketball, but I, I think... Um, you know, there were a handful of players who probably helped themselves today uh, who I thought played well. Uh, so, you know, for people who are in the weeds, uh, like me and, you know, most of the NBA, it's it's worth being here. So, everyone that I saw already and kind of chatted up at the arena, everyone's in good spirits. You know, it's spring. A lot of these guys are in off-season mode. It's kind of a bit of a reunion here. But it gets kind of serious tomorrow with the lottery. And, and some hopes will be made. Some dreams will be shattered. Um, you know, I've got a couple of thoughts in mind, but is there anything going into tomorrow night's drawing that you're kind of most paying attention to? Um, I mean, I, I think there are some teams, I'll say this, like, as, as I've been kind of writing through, uh, you know, thinking about the storylines for the lottery, I, I would say, I think the one interesting thing is just that there are a handful of teams who are picking like relatively high in the lottery, like. You know, not not the teams that are the, the tanking teams, but like the next group, like the Indiana, Portland, uh, San Antonio, you know, teams that like aren't traditionally, you know, picking high in the lottery. Uh, you know, Indiana and Portland obviously tanks. I mean, you have Sacramento and uh, New Orleans in that group. Uh, you know, team, teams that like want to be playoff teams and are like not that necessarily that far away from going back to the playoffs, or you know, in New Orleans' case, they're in the playoffs. Um, so. I'm just curious to see if any of those teams will, you know, have strike gold because, like, 
you know, it's one thing if you're Houston and like, yeah, we're going to be bad for, you know, three or four years. We're probably going to have some, some more bites off the, the apple, you know, to get a, a star. And we already have Jalen Green, right? But if you're the Spurs uh, and you don't necessarily have like the foundational talent, you know, they have good players, but it's not they don't know who that guy is going to be yet. Uh, you know, somehow winning the lottery in a year like this where you're a little bit worse than normal uh, is a pretty big um, coup, right? So, like, I'm just curious to see how that works. Like, I think Portland is a team to watch just knowing that they, you know, still want to be competitive with, with Lillard but are still kind of stuck in between where, like, if they get a bad bounce or whatever and they don't improve the team enough this year, they may not be a playoff team and they might have to blow it up and trade them, right? So, like, you know, things like that I think are going to be – sort of like the subtext of what's happening. Like, it'll be boring if, you know, Detroit or Houston or OKC wins, uh, <laughs> right? Like, just objectively. Well, I don't have the exact results off the top of my uh, – or in front of me right now, but off the top of my head, I feel like we've had at least a big jump in every year, right? Last year we had Toronto up to four, um, you know, in, in, in the very first year of the 2019 lottery um, with, with this new format with the four – drawings and the, the bottom three teams all have an even 14% chance. We saw Memphis and uh, New Orleans jump up to two into one from like six for seven. It's funny, like talking, like you mentioned that group, that group the Indiana-Portland-Sac tier, like I've talked to people with those teams because the way the odd structure works, like, you know, the, the Kings have a 32% chance of getting in the top four. That's a pretty high, I mean, obviously – it's it's not guaranteed, but it's basically one in three shot that this team has a has a has a chance of of getting in you know one and a class that theoretically is a top four right. Everyone has been kind of viewing this class as some order of Jabari Smith, Chet Holmgren, Paolo Banchero, and Jaden Ivey. So to get into that top four and this year in particular is clearly something that would, would pay massive dividends for one of those teams. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I mean, yeah, it's not like we're talking about, you know, there's only two guys or whatever. Like, at least it's – I think it probably helps that it's fairly clear, like, I don't know for sure, but, like, generally we kind of think those are going to be the top four guys, right? So it's not like – like, say you jump to four, you know one of them will be there. There's not, like, a huge value drop-off. Like, it would – this isn't going to be a weird year to, like, pick fifth, I think, uh, potentially. Like, if you don't have a clear fit, like, there are some teams, you know, where it's a little – well, I guess there's not that many teams that can pick fifth, right? But, like – you know, if OKC drops in four to five or Detroit were to get jumped twice and pick at five, like, you know, that's like a tough spot to be in, right? So, like, those teams are probably secretly hoping, oh, we don't want to fall to five just just because it kind of shuts you out of that value tier in terms of what you would get in that pick for trade. It's less, right? If you just think about it like that. Um, so that's something I keep an eye on. I mean, I also honestly have had, you know, different conversations with people also um, where there's some feeling like, yeah, this would be a nice year to win the lottery. But, like, if you're picking two, three or four, like, you know, if you don't have – those are the guys who are the consensus top four, right? But if you don't necessarily love those guys, uh, then it might be a tough year where you might rather pick, you know, a little bit further down because I do think that uh, there is a pretty good group of guys in between, uh, you know, five to nine, five to ten um, that I think people are really comfortable with, right? So, like, I think this is a pretty decent top ten, relatively speaking. Like, these are guys I feel good about. Uh, maybe not all of them will be stars, uh, but guys are going to have good careers, right? So, like – if you're picking eighth or ninth and you don't move up, you're not screwed. Like, I think they're, you'll walk away happy at the end of the day. There should be opportunities to trade down. If you're a team that's four or three and the guy that you want isn't really there. Like, the Spurs have multiple first-round picks. The Thunder are, you know, they're, they're right outside that top group of 
the three teams with a 14% chance, and obviously they're entrenched in probably one of the more brazen rebuilds this league's ever seen. Um, and, you know, they haven't gotten the lottery luck in this recent, you know, post-KD and post-Russ era. Um, you know, I, I could, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is guaranteed to happen, but I can see the Thunder using four in a future first or a later pick to try to move up. Um, Memphis has a couple of picks, not to say they're going to move up to four, but um, I think that's a very strong trade possibility in this draft too, just like they did last year. Um, so, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of trades in this draft too, like in general. That's something I've heard and echoed amongst a lot of people on the league and just early conversations here being that what you kind of playing off what you said, how that, that like five, not even five to 10, I've heard like five to 16, five to maybe even 20 could just be a real total crapshoot of how executives and scouts kind of value these guys differently. Like the, the order is going to be pretty difficult, I think, to pin down in that uh, area until we actually have a real order to go through. Uh, I mean, I kind of disagree. Like, well, my point about five to 10 was not that it was that my point about five to 10 is that I know who those players are that I think are good. <laughs> right. So I'm push, I'll push back. On okay. That. But, I, but I do think like, yeah, once I would, I would agree that once you get outside, you know, maybe a dozen players, you know, 12, 13 players after that, I, I think like from, you know, 14 on to 35 is a mess. Um, but you know, those things will kind of shake themselves out. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is really, really fluid. I think it, it flattens out at that point. Um, and it becomes really preferential. Uh, like there's not a ton you know, to separate some of these guys, you know, it's, it, it comes down to preference. Um, so to your point, I think that's true. I it just, I think it happens a little bit later in the draft than you think. Yeah, that's fair. Um, okay. So in that range, you know, you, you mentioned Portland, they come into tomorrow's lottery with the six best odds and the answer 99, one of our loyal listeners, a Blazers fan, um, he wrote in the comments that he's got a sinking feeling that Portland will look to trade the pick for Jeremy Grant if they drop in the lottery. He says, please tell him that it isn't happening. He'd much rather roster it to keep it for someone like Eason or Davis. What say you about that scenario? What, if Portland moves back? Let's say they fall to eight. Yeah, I mean, like, it kind of depends who's there. I mean, like, there are some guys who I think fit Portland. Like, if he, Keegan Murray, I think would be a good fit for Portland. Will he be there at eight? Like, probably not, I would think, if, he, if they were to drop that far, right? So, like, you're probably looking at, you know, Johnny Davis, maybe Dyson Daniels, who both of us really like. Um, you know, you could be looking at Ben Matherin. Like, those are still guys who I think are good to add. But, like, um, I just I just think Portland is in, as I kind of mentioned before, I think they're in one of the tougher positions of any team in, you know, in the draft. Uh, just And in the league right now, um, and, you know, whether this pick – if this pick jumps into the top four, you know, it's like, hey, we have a – you know, maybe we'll take a player who we can really build around. But also it's like, oh, well, maybe do we have to use this as a chip to, like, get better because that's what Dame wants, you know, is to, to be a playoff team again. So, like, they're really stuck, I think, in, in a tough place. Um, and I think, you know, I, the party line will be that it's fine. But, like, you know, that's just a really tough situation to be in objectively. Like, I know nothing about the inner workings of Portland, but just, like, you know, that's a really tough scenario for them. Like whether they move up or they stay at eight or nine or whatever, move back, move back. Um, I think just what to do with this pick uh, is really going to kind of impact how the future of the franchise works. Cause there's not a ton of time for them to decide what they're going to do. Right. Yeah. And you know, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. I, I believe report they're in a fascinating situation being that the Pelicans run through the playing tournament to the eight seed. 
really screwed them. You know, they, they, they basically had a second lottery pick on lock. And whether it would have been 10 or 14 or whatever, I mean, the, the, the Pelicans finished with um, – the thirty, the thirty sixth pick, or, or, or with thirty six wins, excuse me, on the year. So, if I have this roughly inaccurate, I apologize. But that's that's one game worse than New York, so they probably would have been slotted in at eleven, depending on the tiebreakers and all that. Um, that is the pick that, from conversations I had with people around the NBA, it seemed like Portland was willing and, and, and hoping to potentially use as, as the the draft capital for Jeremy Grant for somebody else. Um, you know, they were definitely speaking, uh, Portland people were definitely speaking kind of confidently about, you know, oh, they wouldn't have to use the six pick or why would they use the six pick, blah, blah, blah. Well, now they don't have that Pelicans pick to play. And like you mentioned about the, the choice that they are going to have to make here about building around Dame and how to do that expeditiously like that, that, that does, I don't think that's really a choice, but that, that is seemingly very clearly what their plan is here. Um, and, you know, you can pull a dozen executives around the NBA, you know, probably get a majority of them, if not more, who will say that if they are Portland, they would trade Dame and start rebuilding and blowing up. So I, I know that I believe that's where you kind of stand on things. Right. So I get why that would be considered to be kind of like a choice they have to make, but it does seem like they are dead set on, on using this off season as a way to, to springboard back into legit postseason contention and and the Blazers pick is probably the one probably the the highest available pick looking at the board right now Now, maybe the Pelicans depending on how the lottery shakes for them but I think the the Blazers are probably the team that has the highest you know odds that would be looking to potentially use that pick to go get a, a veteran piece right now. Yeah definitely I mean I don't think you can say that about any of the teams in front of them right like it's clear Indiana is you know, going to take a little bit more time. Um, you know, they're not a team that's usually content to be bad, but like, you know, they have they have some parts. I think they made out well with getting Halliburton in the Sabonis trade. So like, there's a piece, and you know, they'll have just some decisions to make. But Indiana also has guys like Buddy Heald, Malcolm Brogdon, Miles Turner, who are going to have some trade value. Uh, who I think, you know, Indiana will be able to kind of, if they choose to say let's let's take another like two two year runway to kind of get back in the playoffs, they'll be able to do it, and they should be in fairly good position now to do that. Um, so, yeah, I think Portland probably, yeah, as you said, um, and I guess, you know, Sacramento is always like trying to make the playoffs uh, is what they say. Right. So so Portland and Sacramento are, are, are both kind of like I, I would say I, I would watch those picks because you never know what the Kings are going to do. And, I, you know, there does seem to be every year a push for them to get better. Right. And they haven't done it yet. No, that's fair. I haven't met, I haven't really started to look into that scenario with Sac. I mean, you're right. That, that calculus makes a lot of sense, um, and, and clearly making the postseason's been, you know, top of mind there forever. It's it was a clear talking point during their coaching search. Uh, it was a, a driving factor for trading for Demontis Sabonis at the deadline. Um, I don't think that getting moving that piece for a veteran is, is kind of the goal. I do think they want to find someone um, who can kind of be somewhat on the timeline of De'Aaron and Sabonis like growing all together. Um, but it, it, that's a fair one to point out as well. Um, all right, we've got our first call now. Uh, a regular listener and, and a, a personal favorite of mine, Charlie. Charlie, please unmute, unmute yourself, man. How you doing? Good, fellas. Welcome to Chicago. I'm glad you're here when you're not having to uh, step over slush bottles. you got a nice day out today. 
Well, Jeremy's actually Chicago based, but uh, oh, are you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful out here. Definitely, I took a nice little walk today to get some lunch. It's uh, it's a nice time. How are you? Hell yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, guarant. You know, ramping up my draft. I just, I just do kind of a this time of year, just familiarize myself with the guys, and um, it got me thinking about like I'm, I'm really interested in the generalizations and stereotypes, you know, right or wrong, honest or flawed that basketball personnel people make when they're evaluating players every every year this time and like jake i'm pumping my way through your book i came across the part where you mentioned danny ferry um was once a favorite for the sixers job before like the leaked audio of him reading the scouting report on luol dang where mm-hmm. he like pretty much insinuated that that his Af- dang's african ancestry was almost a character flaw within the locker room and like I'm not like I'm I'm not trying to reincriminate Ferry, but I'm just I'm interested in sort of how groups of players are talked about um, domestically, internationally, maybe college system. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, is there sort of a, a not for public consumption language that people in your business <laughs> use? Like, or was that an anomaly? You know? Um, I mean, to start. I forget the exact quote, but whatever that Cleveland Browns director of player personnel, whatever he said at the NFL draft about like poor and hungry, like that type of stuff definitely does unfortunately occur at the NBA level. Um, And the stereotypes from where guys are from, I mean, as simple as, you know, European big guys for being soft to, you know, other things. Yeah. It's definitely still prevalent. I mean, Jeremy can kind of speak, I think, a little bit more to how that gets discussed in terms of, like, just talking shop amongst scouts, like, in the stand. I don't think it really comes up, like, in draft rooms. I think it's more, like, in passing conversations with guys. It is lazy, and I, I have come across a lot of um, team people who, who try to encourage guys to make, you know, cross-racial um, player comps and stuff like that to kind of – uh, steer away from those uh, situations because it is it is reductive in a lot of the sense. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I mean, it's hard for me to speak to that because I'm not in the room uh, with these teams, so I don't know what's being said. Uh, I will say, like, I, I do think that generally around the NBA, like most of the people I know, I, I would say, like, uh, there's definitely, you know, more forward-thinking approaches to scouting now than there were, you know, years ago. So I think that I would like to think that a lot of that, you know, doesn't happen. Um, in terms of how that's discussed. But, like, yeah, stereotypes always happen. But I also think, like, the stuff that leaks out is probably always going to be sensationalized. Uh, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not speaking to the Dave Barry thing, but just, like, in general. Yeah. Like, if something makes it out, it's probably going to be sensationalized in some way, right? So, like, it's I also probably really being, to... It's also probably coming out because someone would benefit from up that person looking bad who made those comments, right? For sure. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, yeah. and so I, was... I, don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I wasn't just trying to like just focus strictly on the negative aspect of it, but I, I do wonder sort of if there's just any truth, like, Hey, how are Lithuanians different than, are there like widely held, you know, kind of beliefs or is it, um, is that just kind of like a thing of the past? Uh, it's hard, it's hard to say without like being super specific. I mean, like I, I would have to think off the top of my head, um, I mean, there are, like, style of play things where, like, people in Europe, you know, the European guards, for example, are going to play a different style than, uh, you know, some guys in America do. And, again, some of that's because of, you know, athleticism, right? Like, they can't 
do certain things, but like, I don't right. know, I don't know if it's necessarily the, the correct or incorrect stereotype. Like I, I, I always just watch the games and then I decide, right? Like I'm not going <laughs> to, I don't want to jump to a conclusion right. anyone until I've watched the game. Right. Um, okay. No, you're good. I, I'll just say, I do think also a lot of overseas scouting is about comparing different leagues, just like, just like in college too, about, you know, comparing someone at a mid-major to playing at a high major, um, you know, the, the conversation's all about Luca and his draft, right? We're about, you know, where he was doing what he was doing before he got into the league. And I do think there are different conversations about, oh, well, this is how they play in the ACB or this is how you play in Russia. Like, there, there are different right. stylistic changes, but um, – yeah, that that definitely comes up far more often than I, I think any of the stereotypes that come up and are, are used as like a a, a negative. Um, they more just come from like that a person being generally down on that prospect and just kind of rambling and saying something that might not even be founded because they just have an opinion that that player isn't as good as someone else might. Also, all right. Anything else, Charlie? Okay. Thank you, Charlie, as always. Um, so, are there, I mean, you've been right, Jeremy. Interesting. Been your, yeah, that makes sense. And before I get out of here, like, the, the specific example, like, I'm curious about is, like, I follow international hoops, these leagues. Like, All right, I think I, I think Charlie was on delay, and then he started talking, and I cut him out. Apologies for that. Um, what I was saying was, Jeremy, um, you've been pumping out your big boards. You've been doing your mock drafts for a while now. You mentioned that five to ten class. You said Dyson Daniels. Dyson's a you know, big guard, what, 6'6", six, six from the G League Ignite, who I, I really like because I've seen him a couple of times in person from the G League Showcase um, in Vegas in December. Uh, they played The Ignite played against the Canton Charge um, during uh, the All-Star Weekend, and I was there and I watched that game. So I think, like, by – default a bit of a bias since I've seen him up close a couple of times in addition to his tools and, and what I think his ceiling is that's why Dyson Daniels is kind of my favorite prospect of the guys who aren't in that quote-unquote top four again Jabari Smith, Paolo Bonchero, Chet Holmgren, Jaden Ivey in some order is there a, a guy below that top four that you Jeremy are kind of higher on than this? Yeah, I mean, I think Dyson is that guy for me also, uh, just because if I think, you know, the easy answer would be if you just, you know, it, it's funny, like, I don't know how much of this every year is like too much recency, right? But like, I think because this time of year, you know, we're always watching the playoffs as we're thinking about the draft, right? And so like, during the season, I'm not watching as much NBA because I am at games and I'm like worrying about college and I'm on the road, et cetera, right? So like, it's funny, like this time of year, I feel like I find myself um, you know, then watching the NBA playoffs and then thinking about, you know, what types of players are playing in the playoffs, right? So, like, if you if you look at, like, where it's going and, like, how the, you know, the Mavericks had so much success, uh, you know, teams are not so much playing small, but they're just playing a lot of, like, versatile guys at once. You know what I mean? Like, those types of lineups are kind of, like, where it's going, I think. So, like, a guy like Dyson uh, Daniels who can, you know, really guard probably four positions because he's so big, uh, you know, he can play a lot of different roles on offense uh, as long as he continues to improve catching and shooting. Like, guys like that are going to be, you know, so valuable. Like, you know, and as smart as he is at his age uh, and as good as he was in the G League where he had some really, really big games, um, 
you know, I don't see how a guy like that fails, right? So, like, you know, I have him in, like, the six to eight range. I'm honestly – I've been tempted to put him, like, five or six just because I think he's that good a fit for, like, what playoff basketball is now. But, like, again, you have to think, you know, not every team is drafting, you know, you know who's going to be our third best player in the playoffs, right? Like, they want to go for upside. But, like, I think there's upside just in that. So, he, he he's the guy who I'm excited about. I say that, too, a lot about how it seems like we watch these playoffs and a lot of the times certain picks – or certain draft strategies or whatever don't kind of reflect similar things that we just learned in the postseason. But that's also, I think, reflective of how a lot of teams, like you said, aren't exactly drafting to find a player to play in the playoffs right now. The Indiana Pacers certainly aren't. The Oklahoma City Thunder certainly aren't. We talked about Portland, you know. I think the Pelicans, if they do keep that pick, they definitely are. Um, you know, the Sacramento's looking to make that postseason push, but um, – it's, every team has a different uh, agenda when they're on the clock. So that does drive that uh, those different calcul- calculus as well. Um, yeah, like, I kind of say something, too. It's, like, and kind of on that point, like, you know, we always hear, like, the I think it's a common argument that I think people have every year, and it's like, oh, you shouldn't draft for – never draft for fit. Like, draft the best player available. But, like, the best player available can be relative to what your team is, right? Like, you have to draft for fit. You can't just draft a player you can't use, right? So, like – I think that discussion is too often boiled down to like a cut and dry, like take the best player. It's like, okay, like let's think about this. You know, like, like as we're talking about like the context and when I'm doing my mock drafts, like understanding like, you know, what teams are doing and where the organization is going. I mean, that matters a lot. Right. So like, I don't think it best fit is or best player is as simple as a, you know, cut and dry black and white conversation. Right. Cause teams aren't thinking about it like that either. Along that note, I mean, one thing that I discussed in my book that Charlie graciously mentioned, the Orlando Magic, when they were rebuilding from the Dwight Howard era under Rob Hennigan, I think one of the issues that that rebuild fell under is they had a lot of quote-unquote best player availables who were similar players by makeup, and but were also raw and unfinished products and kind of tweeners between positions and therefore ended up kind of stepping on each other's toes and, and preventing the guy next to them from having uh, a linear development path where they pick Victor Oladipo and try to convert him into a point guard one year, and they trade for Tobias Harris at that trade deadline, and the very next year they bring in Aaron Gordon and Alfred Payton who were, were you know, combo guards with lack of shooting, both Alfred and Oladipo, and then Gordon was kind of a combo forward who didn't really necessarily have a reliable three-point stroke, um, and his you know positional uh, strengths were kind of curious, just like Tobias's were, and he threw in a Mo Harkless in there and other young players, and just kind of um, you know it gets complicated. It's not it's not as easy to when you you have something like where Memphis is at right now, for example. Obviously, they're kind of a, a gold standard of how to do a rebuild, and they've had some pretty nice lottery luck with bouncing up to get Jolly, like we talked about at the top here. But they've got their point guard in John. They've got a two guard in Desmond. And they've got a, a big man in Jaron. Like, it does help when you have complementary pieces so that they can kind of all grow together. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's just like I always just find that inane when people are just like, oh, always take the best player available because, it's again, it's just not as simple as that a lot of the time. You know, and and, and the other thing is like, yeah, oftentimes, you know, we'll see guys who get passed on. Uh, you know, Desmond Bain is a good example. Like, went to Memphis where they really valued him, and he turned into a, play, a good player right away, right? But, like, 
if he had gone to a team that didn't view him like that and they just took him to take him, does he have this type of career? Maybe not, right? So, like, it, it kind of – it's a self-defeating way to talk about it because a lot of the time, like, the guys who really need those specific fits will end up on the teams that want them the most, right? And that's why sure. his careers take off, so. Well, a guy who a lot of people talk about as having the potential, the ceiling to be the best player in this draft overall, let alone the best player available on the board at, at the time of – a certain selection is Shaden Sharp from Kentucky, who didn't obviously even play at Kentucky. And for that, I mean, I watched very little college basketball as is. I haven't seen this guy play at all. Um, you've got a much stronger sense, obviously, on what his background is, what his makeup is, what his skill set is. Um, I mean, in, in addition to what teams are saying, but from you as just a draft analyst, expert, insider, what 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 is kind of the breakdown of – who Shane Sharp is, where his stock is kind of at right now, and what could change and what's still to be decided between now and, and that June, what's it, 26th? Uh, I should know this, but whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, yeah, Shaden's really interesting, and it's, it's pretty – he's one of those types of guys where it's easy to watch, like, clips or even just, you know, watch a whole game and, and just kind of, like, see, you know, why the upside is there, right? Um, I went and saw him play. I was at Beach Jam – Last summer, so I got to see him play live twice, uh, which ended up being obviously really valuable uh, considering that he didn't play in college. Um, but, you know, just his athleticism is pretty unique. Um, you know, he's strong. He's fluid. He's, he has some uh, quickness and shiftiness. Uh, he can, you know, create space for his shot, and he's a pretty good shooter who should get, you know, he needs to get better. Uh, but he's somebody who I think we can assume will be a above-average jump shooter and be able to, you know, make those tough shots off the dribble, right? Um, so you look at that skill set that he has, uh, and you compare him athletically to some of the other wings uh, and shooting guards, you know, that are also in the top ten, like a Johnny Davis or a Matherin, who are both, you know, really, really good, well-established college players. Uh, but you look at Shaden, and uh, you know, he turns nineteen uh, at the end of the month, uh, and you consider the age, uh, and you consider the you know trajectory that he's been on, kind of improving, uh, and you can talk yourself into him maybe at you know maybe three or four if you like him that much so like you know no one is really going to know because this is all, this is all going to happen now behind closed doors um but you know where he goes is really going to depend on how well he does in workouts uh and how much he can convince teams that uh you know he is what they want him to be right because you know there's not college film on him um when we talk about a safe pick sometimes it's just a matter of like how how comfortable do we feel based on how much that we've seen uh you know at the, the higher levels and we, we don't he's not going to have that component right so like and he's going to be the type of person who's going to look really good in a workout. Like he has his pro day actually here uh, in Chicago coming up a little bit. Um, so, uh, you know, that whole off the court process and how the, how they handle his, uh, you know, pre-draft uh, is really going to determine where he goes. Right. So like at this point, like I don't necessarily expect him to go in the top four, but like, I also wouldn't be like that shocked if he, someone just falls in love and sees that. Right. So like, I don't know much about him as a kid, but I know he's sort of a quieter player, um, you know, there are times where I thought, he, I thought he could have played harder, but also like I think a lot of a lot of teenagers have that <laughs> to them, where it's like certain days they just aren't having a good day or whatever. And you, so it's hard to like say for sure on that end for me. Um, but again, that's a big piece of what teams are trying to figure out too. Is it's like everyone's seeing the same film, but like how do we make assessments of the other things? Take the total guess here by saying this, um, but I think from everything you just described and the fact that he will be t- doing a lot of stuff behind closed doors, like you said specifically. I think Shaden Sharp's going to be the the player in that the top half of the lottery 
who is either most difficult to pin down where he's going or we're going to be hearing the most kind of misinformation, smoke, uh, just random intel floating around the echo chamber because teams aren't really going to know what exactly to believe because he's not going to work out for everybody. He's in a position where he'll probably decline a lot of workouts too. Um, That's something that for anyone listening isn't necessarily familiar with. I mean, agents definitely will try to use um, workout invites as a way to kind of uh, handicap the draft range for a particular player that they have. If they really want it, like for anyone, not to shade and sharp, but if you really want to say like, you know, we're a top eight pick, like you feel like you've got a real baseline with New Orleans or whoever's there at the eighth pick, let's say, just hypothetically speaking, you can – it might not help you because you might end up falling. And, and like that happened in Erlens Noel in 2013 when he fell from presumptively the number one pick all the way down to six. Right. I'm not, right. It's not, this is not to say that the Hornets would have definitively taken him over Cody Zeller there, but the fact mm-hmm. that Cody Zeller worked out for Charlotte was a big, from, what I, from my understanding, was a big reason in part why the Hornets p- took Zeller over Nerlens in that year because they didn't get to see him. So. Um, I'm expecting similar chicanery. I, I don't know off the top of my head who is representing uh, Sharp, but I, I would think that that's going to be a, a pretty big storyline as we get closer to draft night. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, as you and I know, uh, a lot of the time, like what happens is dictated heavily by you know how things are handled behind the scenes. Uh, and when you have a player like Shaden, uh, you know, where there is less information available, uh, you know, if you are gonna, if you know, if you, basically, if they're getting good advice and they play it smart, um, you know, they'll have some say over where they go as well, right? Um, you know, they cannot work out for certain teams or try to, you know, obviously, if I were them, I'd try to keep it secret who I have even worked out for, like all all that stuff uh, does yeah. come into play. Um, so that's definitely going to be a situation to monitor. Um, and yeah, I think you're right that he's one of those guys who can kind of shake up, uh, you know, how the top, you know, six or seven picks uh, play out. And it, before we get to our, our, our second call here with John, it's not just workouts too. You can pick and choose if you don't if you don't attend the combine. You can pick and choose which teams get access to your medical info too. That was a big thing with Joel Embiid um, back in 2014, um, where he only gave his medical information to the Cavs. He picked first. Um, I believe the Bucks had it at number two. Philly had it at three. And then there was no team that had his info again until Boston at six and then the Lakers again at seven. So that that wild card, I remember, allowed people with the Celtics and the Lakers to kind of be confident that if he fell past Philly, he would have been there. And medical stuff gets withheld every single draft. But it, it, it happens every single year. Um, so that's another tool that agents and players certainly have in their tool chest. Um, to be able to kind of try to manipulate and steer where they want to fall um, when all things are said and done. Um, all right, we've got John here. John, uh, feel free to take yourself off mute and uh, fire away. Hey, can you guys hear me? We got you. How you doing? All right, wonderful. How are you guys? Can't complain. Good. Well, so, Jeremy, I'm kind of curious. For teams that have drafted well in recent years what do you think is a player quality that they are prioritizing that maybe other teams aren't um and then the kind of second part semi-related question there is that we're now seeing in the playoffs that you know uh big men 
um, and, and even big forwards um, are not spending time on the court. I, I think I read something today about, you know, Kleba being the largest player that's really getting playing time. Um, and so how do you think that plays out looking at the, you know, most mocks top three uh, and, and our teams now seeing what's happening in the playoffs going to take an even more critical eye to those top guys leading into the draft. Yeah. Um, so I guess on the first part, like, is there a team that you could specifically like speak to? Cause I just, you know, I think every team looks for different stuff and team, people are successful for different reasons. Right. So like, I, I don't know exactly how to answer that. Um, but sure. the, yeah. So as a Thunder fan, I, I, you know, I think one of the things that you can see that they're doing is that they are very much prioritizing size and um, a variance in skill, right? So Josh Giddy is 6'8", 6'9", um, and that provides some advantages as a point guard. Um, is, is that something that, you know, they're giving more credence to that team should, which is having not only the skill variance there, but also the size? Or, you know, is it such that, you know, you would have another team that they are just prioritizing being elite in one specific area, whether it be shooting, perimeter defense, et cetera. And so that is something that more teams should be doing. Um, yeah, definitely. I guess that would be my example. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think the Thunder are actually a great example. Um, I think it's hard to say for sure if they've drafted well, just because I don't know how it's going to play out for them because <laughs> you know, they're still very much like in a transition phase as a team. But I do think there is a theme where, yeah, you could look at Giddy, you could look at uh, Pokashevsky, you could look at, you know, even, you know, Trey Mann is a bigger guard. Um, you know, Shea, obviously they traded for him, but, uh, you know, they, they're kind of, Darius Baisley is a project they took on. Like, I, I think the the size skill proposition, uh, and they're not alone in that, but I do think that that's something that, uh, you know, when we're talking about upside now, uh, you know, those bigger guys are the guys that you want to develop, right? Because they don't come around every year, uh, the guys with the tools and the size, um, you know, comparatively, and I think this kind of goes with also to your second point a little bit about size. Um, you know, I always say this every year, but you know, uh, you can always in every draft, there's always going to be a you know a six three guard who can get a bucket, right? Those guys come around every year. Uh, you know, those guys with those you know proportions are you know closer to what the average person is, right? So they're just there are more of them. Um, you know, every college team needs someone who can go score, so those guys always are going to you know be able to rise to a certain point with that role. Um, but in the NBA, it's about, you know, being able to adjust, but, you know, I, I think that there is something to that where, um, you know, you're not necessarily going to find, and, you know, in the context of like one guy I can mention is like Leonard Miller in this year's draft, who's, you know, a guy who not everyone knows a lot about, I don't, I'm still learning about him, um, you know, Canadian teenager coming straight out of high school. Uh, you know, we're not sure how good he is, but we do know that he's six, nine and like has some skill potential that other, uh, you know, guys that size may not have. Right. So like, that's why he's an interesting prospect in itself. Um, so I guess that I hope that kind of addresses like, you know, teams look for different things and value intangibles differently. And obviously, uh, you know, what you have on the roster is going to kind of impact, you know, how you build a team, but for the Thunder or, you know, going back to them, you know, they, their roster is so fluid that they can really take chances and like see how the parts fit. Um, to your second part about size and I think how, how it pertains to like the top of this draft. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen in recent years a lot, you know, how the traditional center is kind of gone. Uh, you know, even the best bigs like the Rudy Gobert's, uh, you know, have limited value uh, in the playoffs. Uh, you know, DeAndre Ayton, you know, his minutes were kind of reduced and the Suns uh, kind of got run off the floor um, last, you know, as, as this, the series ended. Um, 
because he couldn't necessarily cover some garden space. Uh, so like, I think those are definitely considerations. Um, you know, just in the context of you know, the top guys in this draft, uh, I think Ben Caro is the guy who w- would probably worry me the most about. Um, you know, he's a guy who I, I think like there are probably some similarities. I've used like Julius Randle and Blake Griffin uh, in terms of guys who are like athletic and, you know, have skill and can be kind of offensive focal points, but at the same time, like have always kind of dragged their team down a little bit by where they're limited on the defensive end, because you have to really have like the perfect partner for that guy. Uh, you know, that's probably what we worry me a little bit about Ben Caro. And I think that's a concern a lot of people share. Uh, you know, I'm probably least worried about Jabari Smith just because he's such a live body. He can really move. Uh, you know, he may not really be a center, like in the traditional sense, but I do think he's big enough that, you know, once he's right now, he's, you know, 19, but when Jabari Smith is 25, can he be a center when you're closing the game? Yeah, probably. Like, <laughs> I think he'll probably be up for that. Um, and, you know, Holmgren is so unique just because of his body type, right? And I think, you know, people are trying to discern, you know, is he really switchable because of the strength issue, right? Like, he's mobile, but is he switchable, uh, you know, in the playoffs? Or what is that going to amount to? Um, I think that's, you know, for him, a central question and how you value Chet is, you know, is he just a really good defensive prospect who can protect the rim? Uh, or is he, you know, slightly flawed in that he is still, you know, if you, if you believe he can't switch and he's still more of a traditional five despite how – Unorthodoxy is. I think that's where the big Chet debate kind of centers, uh, and that's kind of where I've landed on that too. So, like, I, I hope that it kind of speaks to your question. Um, but it, I think you're right that it is kind of a, you know, the, the defensive assessments. Uh, you know, kind of depends on how you project, uh, how comfortable you feel with each guy. Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate the answer. And yeah, I'm right with you um, with with Chet. It's just it's so interesting given how these playoffs are, are unfolding. Um, and the reduced center minutes, you know, how do we now project Chet, even though there's so much skill there and upside, are we looking at someone that is ultimately going to be very limited if if only just because of his maybe limited ability to work uh, on the perimeter, either offensively or defensively? So, um, but I really appreciate the insight and the the thoughtfulness. Yeah, that's a great point. You asked a good question, and I think – yeah, like, while we're on Chet, like, again, like, that could be why he's super valuable. Like, if he – if Chet is, uh, you know, effectively a power forward who can defend like a center and has limited versatility and can still protect the basket when he's in the game, then, yeah, he's going to be really valuable. Uh, but if he is, again, more of a traditional five in the, in the end where you can't really necessarily switch him uh, and he's not matchup proof, um, then it could create problems. Uh, and that's – it's just tough because at Gonzaga, it was just hard to assess. There were not enough matchups that could really, like – you could really get a sense of the physical issues uh, or lack thereof. So, all right, thank you, John. Yeah, I, I think you know it's also responsible to not necessarily make such sweeping um, assessments from just one postseason. Being that you know, flashback to last year, like even even last round, DeAndre Eight was being talked about as being Patrick Ewing two helping Chris Paul carry the Suns when Devin Booker was hurt. All that jazz. I mean, Brooke Lopez was kind of a, a, a massive force in that Boston series until the the wheels fell off for Milwaukee and was a key ing- ingredient uh, for the for the Bucks last year. But obviously, they, they closed small with that Bobby Portis, Pat Connaughton lineup. Um, and you know, we we have seen value for for role bigs throughout the league. It, it's I don't I don't think teams are making like sweeping decisive decisions like you know death to the big man, but there definitely are a lot of teams who are not as excited about taking someone 
like Chet in that top tier because he of the potential where the best case scenario doesn't fit where if it's a six six guy you know some someone like like Ben McLemore for example I keep going back to the 2013 draft for whatever reason but like he was someone who was considered a top prospect at one point in time falls to seven never really has uh, like a standout NBA career but that guy hung around the NBA for a decade, playing along, playing in some playoff teams, you know, because he could shoot and he was rangy and had the athleticism to defend. Like his worst case scenario, his floor, a lot higher than you know the worst case scenario of a seven footer who might not be able to guard in space and might not be able to do anything effective at the NBA level defensively aside from being a weak side chop chop blocker. Um, so I think that's also a big element too in comparing guys across positions in terms of strengths and weaknesses. It's there, there are different things that allow those guys to their, their worst case scenarios to at least hit. And a lot of the times you do have teams that are drafting for just the highest possible ceiling strike, but you also have teams who are drafting guy guys specifically because they think they have the best case scenario to be just at least something. And again, that all goes back to how teams, not just depending on what type of guy, like what who the thinkers are in that front office, but also what type of situation that that franchise is at, in, in the developmental curve of where they at, where they're at as an organization. Um, but the scales is kind of always sliding. I think. Yeah, exactly. It's why it's so hard to talk about it. Like it, you know, because everyone is just has such different uh, philosophies. And again, we only get bits and pieces of what's really going on. So it's like. You know, we can draw inferences based on what happens, but, um, you know, so much of this is like, uh, you know, behind closed doors stuff that people don't find out about. Um, all right. We're, co- we're coming up here at the top of the hour. Is there like a burning question about the draft or the lottery, something that's on your mind here that uh, I should have asked you about that is kind of a, a big storyline or something you're really kind of attuned to here? Mm, I mean, you're asking me this. Uh, I mean, I don't know if there's a question you should have asked me. That's your job. Um, <laughs> that's uh, it. No, I mean, I'll say like, I mean, it's, I think it's it's going to be pretty interesting to see like this how this week goes. Like, most of the top guys don't play at the combine, which is always annoying. Um, but uh, also, like, why would they? Like, I understand how the game is played. Um, one guy I'm, I'm pretty interested to see what happens with is um, is Patrick Baldwin uh, from Milwaukee, who. Uh, you know, it was really exciting, uh, you know, coming into college, but, you know, played it for his dad in college and the team was bad and then he was hurt and it was like hard to see him and everybody was frustrated. Uh, I watched him work out last week uh, and he looked like relatively healthy. I think he's still getting his confidence back, but like he's super tall. He's huge. He can really shoot. Like I have a hard time seeing how far that guy's going to fall. So I think it's going to depend on kind of how they, again, going back to like how the game is played, like, you know, what's going to happen with uh, with Baldwin and his, um, you know, medicals? Like, will they control that and try to get him to the right team? Like, you know, it's another one of those situations that I think is worth watching. Uh, but, you know, his talent is pretty is pretty obvious when you just watch him and get shots up at that size. I'm really curious about how the lottery falls in terms of how it could impact Jalen Brunson's free agency. Um, <laughs> because Jaden Ivey is probably going to be the first guard that comes off the board. And if, you know, Detroit falls to fourth, let's say, and they take Jaden Ivey, right. or if Detroit falls to fifth maybe even, and they end up taking Shaden Sharp, 
does that fill yeah. the spot that the Pistons, for example, theoretically want to pair a secondary guard alongside Kane Cunningham like they're being very heavily rumored to be interested in? The Pacers, who apparently um, we keep hearing have interest in Jalen Brunson being that, you know, former Mavericks head coach where Carlisle is there. Tyrese Halliburton is their point guard of the future, but he's also not, you know, your traditional point. Um, and, and, and there's talk about them wanting to have a combo guard type piece like Jalen Brunson next to him. Um, you know, New York, obviously the team that is probably the most linked to Brunson through all this. Like they've got, I mean, do they get lottery luck and jump up and are they fourth somehow? And they, they if they get Jaden Ivey, like, does that change? You know, I thought, I thought to say that I think it's so cut and dry that like wherever Jaden Ivey goes is, is going to eliminate a potential landing spot for Jalen Brunson. But, I mean, there are limited buyers and sellers or point guard destinations and point guards on the market this offseason. Like, it is going to be connected somehow. I, I am curious to see if it does have a dramatic ripple effect or if it's just another luck of the draw thing that happens. Yeah, no, it certainly could have an impact in that way. Um, like, as you talk about landing spots, um, you know, like Ivy is more of a – combo more of a two than a one but like it doesn't really matter like not really like he's a guard who's going to need the ball to develop and has a lot of upside but you got to really like devote resources and time into him so like you know i do think yeah detroit like if you take him it definitely i mean like they could play cunningham as like a small forward but, like again you want to you know keep the main thing the main thing like you have those two guys you want to build around those guys um so that's something i think is actually a great point that you make that i hadn't thought about um but well, thank yeah, you. I, I mean, there are only, yeah, there are only so many guards uh, and so many spots. And um, I, I mean, Brunson's an awesome player. I'm a, you know, I've been a big Jalen fan for, you know, since he was in high school. So, you know, wherever he lands, we'll probably be making a smart decision to pay him, I think. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I don't know enough about, you know, free agency. Honestly, I haven't thought much about free agency yet. Uh, so uh, that's something I'll probably need to think about. But um, yeah, I mean, Ivy, Ivy is the type of guy who I wouldn't shock me if he goes at number two. Like, I don't think he'll go first. But, uh, you know, Detroit or, in, um, you know, a team that really loves the idea of him as their, you know, sort of guard, playmaker, centerpiece uh, could do it. And I don't think it'd be crazy. Like, he's two on my big board. So, um, Last question for me. I'm curious, who do you think would be the most interesting team to, to win the number one pick? Oh, that's a good question. Um, define interesting. Like, the team that, if they got it, that has a realistic shot, like a top six or so team, that would create the most kind of chaos, questions, uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it's got to be Portland just because, yeah, if they win the number one pick, like, yeah, it'd be sweet to like, get, get Jabari Smith. But, again, if you're Portland, then you have to ask, like, who can we go get with number one, right? Like. Yeah. Portland say, hey, okay, see, we'll give you number one uh, for like number four or five, or whatever your pick is, and something, right? Like that creates so many scenarios in terms of like what can Portland do with that pick to get better. And I think I know I've been talking about them a lot, but I think it's just because the you know the the, the conflict of you know what to do is is so clear and obvious with them in terms of where the roster is and where they want to be. Um, that I think I think they're definitely the most fascinating team that could possibly win. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. I'm curious to see if, if OKC gets it. I, I would be because you know we hear all this talk every year. Oh, if, you know, this team had no, this guy number one on their board. Like it'll be a nice, interesting data point 
moving forward in this obviously elongated rebuild of the Thunder are involved in to kind of see which of the guys that they would pick first. I, I would be curious too. Yeah, because you know, in their case, you know, I've heard it argued. I've heard it argued both ways uh, with the Thunder, where it's, yeah, you know, Chet makes sense for them, but also like, is there duplication with Chet and Poku? Like, can you really play both of them together? Do they even care about Poku in the long run anymore? Like, is that something that they are not worried about? Uh, you know, Jabari Smith, I think, you know, to me is the best prospect in the draft. Uh, you could argue that he's you know, also the type of player that Presti would love uh, to develop, and you know, who would be comfortable playing basketball anywhere. He's not going to be worried about being in Oklahoma City. Like, he's going to just play ball, you know. Like, so I think those two guys, uh, or whoever really ends up being, but um, yeah, I, I mean, just out of curiosity to know who they take, I think it'd be interesting, right? Yeah, and the other thing with the Thunder too, and maybe with Houston as well, being that you know teams that we're expecting to still kind of be in the tanking mold next year with Victor Wembanyama, the French prospect, like basically expected to be the number one pick. I, I know there's a lot of talk about Scoot Henderson, but I mean it, it's it's obviously way 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 too early, but there's pretty much an overwhelming sense around the basketball community, right, that Wembanyama is the the far and away, you know, most intriguing prospect, like would would taking Chet now with having a war chest like OKC, where if if what if they really do think Wembanyama is this type of guy like that, you know, would they be willing to put seven of all these ridiculous amounts of picks that they have to go? And I'm just spitballing crazy scenarios here. Like, does that does that thinking even you know start to impact teams thinking this year? I don't know. I just something that I'm throwing out there, um, but it'll be interesting to see if that if that is something that gets talked about in hindsight about certain teams' calculus about taking a big guy or taking Chet in particular this year. Yeah, totally. It's a great point. Um, yeah, I mean, I think right now I'd be pretty surprised if it's, if he's not number one. Like if you're in the draft right now, he'd be number one. Uh, he's a really really unique prospect, um, and uh, I have not seen him live in person yet. This summer, I will be doing my you know, film work. I, I, I'm not always looking too far ahead in the future uh, just because I have to worry about this draft. But uh, I do think yeah, he's the type of player who, like the teams who are bad are going to stay bad just in case they can get him, you know, like he's that good. So there you go. All right, before I let you go, as, as always with my guests, I've asked you a lot of questions. Do you happen to have any questions for me? You don't have to, but I love putting people on the spot. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I didn't think so. All right, man. I'll be seeing you around. Uh, thank you, everyone who listened. Um, you know, enjoy the lottery festivities tomorrow. It's still amazing to me that a multi, multi, multi billion dollar industry is, um, you know, the fate of many of these organizations is up to chance. And uh, I'm going to be in the lottery sequestered drawing room tomorrow. So fascinated to see how it all unfolds. Um, I've got uh, another room coming up on Friday. Um, with Wozni Labre from uh, The Ringer. Um, and, you know, follow Jeremy Wu's work on Twitter at Jeremy Wu and at SI.com. Anything else you want to plug? Uh, no, just, to, you know, keep reading. I appreciate the reading, and it's always good to chat with you, even though I talk to you relatively often. <laughs> <laughs> you too, man. All right. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy the rest of Lottery Combine Week on your televisions. We are signing off here live from Chicago. Take care.